I didn't want to be the token adoptee, former foster youth that made it. Like everyone kept trying to use my story as a good story. The system's not that bad. When in fact, it is that bad. I'm just an outlier of someone who did survive. Welcome back to Care So Much. I am so excited about today's guest. His name is Carlos Dillard. He is an author, creator, and educator. He is a transracial adoptee, former foster youth, and a foster care lived experience consultant. So we are going to be talking about foster care and adoption today with Carlos, and I am so excited to get into that. So without further ado, Carlos, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and why you care so much about this. Yeah. Hi, Lillian. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for inviting me onto the show. Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Like you said, my name is Carlos Dillard. I am a former foster youth out of the state of Michigan. I was in foster care during the early 2000s uh, where I was transracially adopted by my adoptive parents. I unfortunately, like a lot of adoptees, you know, I experienced a different adoption and my parents weren't trauma informed or prepared to deal with a child who had emotional issues who lived in inner cities. So they just weren't prepared for themselves or by the state. So unfortunately they ended up abandoning me when I was a teen. Um, from there, I just really struggled for a couple years, uh, being homeless as a teenager without any uh, resources in the middle of Florida was really, really hard uh, until I actually found my way to college. It's this long story that, that I got there, but um, we can kind of discuss that later on, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I made my way to college. I started, I got my degree in African-American history studies and political science. Uh, that's where I met my husband, who I'm still married to. He, he's like my best friend. And now after my last career, before I did this, I was a commercial actor. I uh, modeled and acted for like Mercedes and Amazon and a bunch of cool um, companies that I got to uh, model for while I did that for seven years. And uh, I took that knowledge of media and commercial and uh, producing, and I just thought like, hey, there's no one talking about foster care and adoption. So that's when I started doing uh, lived experience consulting. I started doing my own podcast about adoption and foster care. Um, and uh, TikTok rolled around when the uh, <laughs> the pandemic came, and I was like, hey, this is the perfect platform to use to talk about foster care and adoption and give it and highlight it. Uh, and that's what I kind of do now is I use TikTok to really um, educate people on the, the darkness that can sometimes happens in foster care and adoption. It's pretty apparent and, and obvious from the life that you've had, but I'm curious as to what it was that motivated you to sort of correct people's misunderstandings about foster care and adoption. What made you go, this is something that I want to explain to people. As I became more successful throughout my career, and I would tell people um, about my experience, people would say like, oh my gosh, like I'm so glad like you you made it. And um, a lot of people were aware that there were kids that were being abandoned and traded on Facebook and being abused, even in adoption situations, but no one was really doing anything about it. And the thing that really made me fearful was the things I went through, I just know as a human being, they changed me, but it, it also took, it took a certain type of human being to, to get through that. I knew not everyone made it through. So because I, I didn't want to be like the token adoptee or the former the token fo former foster youth that made it. Like mm -hmm. everyone kept trying to use my story as like a good story to make themselves feel good or to say like, oh, the system's not that bad. When in fact, it is that bad. I'm just I'm just like an outlier of someone who did survive. Mm -hmm. So I started doing research on statistics and seeing um, how adoptees uh, have a higher rate of mental health issues and are more, four times more likely to unalive and like the drug issues that we have. And um, when you really start looking at the cycle of poverty and the cycle of abuse and how it's all connected for, with former, former foster youth and adoptees, I, I started researching that, but then I, every time I looked up adoption or anything, it was all about like people's adoption journeys and how it was so beautiful. And I was like, it's not matching because mm -hmm. everyone's saying it's so beautiful, but the statistics and the numbers and the results that we're seeing in real life aren't matching. So I was like, okay, so I think someone really needs to start telling the truth and unsugarcoating the truth. And I have this phrase, always shine your light. And the reason I say that is because there's a lot of dark truths. And if you just shine your light on the truth, people have no other option but to see it. I just started doing that. And, and that's why that's kind of why I, I showed the truth. And a lot of people think that I hate adoption or, or anti-adoption, which it depends on what type of adoption. 
anti-privatized adoption because I think that's pretty much human trafficking. Uh, but I'm not anti-adoption. I'm pro-family preservation and I'm pro-child, being mm-hmm. pro-child centered, which means that there are other options like permanent guardianship and conservatorship that don't change the child's identity. So I've also noticed just in the last two and a half years of doing this professionally, a lot of people don't know, like just simple stuff that I, I guess I didn't know either until I started doing my own research. So mm-hmm. honestly, I've learned a lot of those things from watching you on TikTok. <laughs> like a lot of those things that you're talking about are were like totally brand new information to me. And there is this very specific narrative around the idea of adoption and this romanticizing of it as this family building tool. Why do you think that is that people want the story to be that way? And why do you think that is potentially harmful. Just like a lot of things in America, it's the biggest marketing scam. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at things like diamonds and Coca-Cola and other things that are literally like projected onto us, diamonds are literally just useless stones that some people told you that are worth something when they really aren't worth Mm -hmm. anything, but they have to sell these diamonds. What's the best way to sell something? Get emotional, tap into people's Mm -hmm. emotions. And that's why I think adoption overall has been sugarcoated and seen through a rose rose filtered lens is because they need to sell it it's they need to sell children that's literally if you look at it they're not especially when it comes to privatized adoption there are different prices for different uh races different prices for mother was was a smoker not in in my i mean just being a human being there should never be a price on humans but people don't know this all they know is like adoption is beautiful mm-hmm. and it saves children and it gives them a better life and i always say adoption doesn't give you a better life it gives you a different life because different is not always better for all of this it's like i i want to center the child and i want people to realize that adoption is not about emotions it's not about what we see on, in hollywood it's not about uh what we've seen on television it is a legal contract that is done between two human beings and one human being cannot and did not consent and cannot get it reversed. So it's something that's very serious that people really just don't don't understand, I don't think. One of the things that jumped out is how commoditized adoption is and how how gross it feels when you like state the language in that way. When you talk about the idea that like these are children that we're putting price tags on. I know one of the most jarring things I've heard in the last couple of years related to that is I don't know if it made it into the final opinion, but in the abortion opinion that came out, one of the reasons why abortion could be illegal now was that the domestic infant supply was low. And I literally like looked that up because I'm like, there's no way the domestic infant supply is in the ruling. And it was. And it just is so interesting to me how sort of ingrained into the like way we talk about adoption this like detaching the fact that this is a human being is in our general perception of it. Um, And just like you said, it's all those marketing things that have become attached to that. With the domestic infant uh, adoption thing, I did a couple articles for a couple of different newspapers about my opinion on that statement. I think it was uh, Justice Coney Barrett, Amy. I don't like that. I don't like mm-hmm. her, <laughs> but anyway, I don't like any of them, but especially her because of the adoption yeah. thing. And she's also an adoptive parent. So I'm just like, you of all people, we don't have a, a issue with children. We have over 400,000 children in the foster care system. We have 115,000 children that are eligible right now in the foster care system for adoption, meaning that temporary or termination of parental rights have happened. Why are people waiting on children? There are 115,000 of them waiting in foster care. The issue is you don't want children. You want babies that you feel are a clean slate or that you can mold, which uh, is something I also talk about. A lot of people, because of the Supreme Court ruling, was like, well, now that uh, abortion has been outlawed in many states, it'll give a chance for me to adopt. And literally listening to how these people talk, they're like, well, maybe since there's more babies, the price will be cheaper. And I'm like, is this a television? Like, are we talking about... (laughs) a new model of a car because it's sounding a lot like supply and demand here. Um, And you're saying that there's a more supply uh, so the demand will go lower. (laughs) It's sounding like trafficking to me, folks. It's so wild that people can't hear that because I don't really have a leg to stand on it when it comes to this, because this is a relatively new piece of information to me. I've just, it's just not been something I've thought about before. I fully believed the narrative that was out there. So It's amazing to me that I missed that. 
that like you can't that people don't hear it when you put it like that like it's so obvious i have this one i do tiktok lives where i do these different prompts i don't know if you've ever been in one of my tiktok lives but i do these prompts that are jarring i will say they are jarring but they're purposely for jarring because when you're going through the fyp just scrolling like i need something just to grab your attention i want you to stay here and listen and one of my prompts is adoption is slavery. Every that gets everyone because they're just like, "What do you mean? I'm gonna adopt a parent? I'm not. A, are you calling me a slave owner?" I'm like, "No, no, no." And I always play. I always ask if I can play a game with them. And this is the game that I play. And they always come in my life, and I was like, "Can I play a game, Gork, so I can explain to you uh, why I say this?" And like, they're always like, "Yeah," because they're like, oh, "You're never gonna, you're never gonna show me, right?" Mm-hmm. And I said, like, "I'm gonna describe something to you, and you let me know what I'm talking about." So I say, "You know, I'm a human being, and I'm interested in a, acquiring another human being. I either will get this from my nation I have here, or I'll go across to another nation. I could spend upwards of sixty thousand dollars for this human being. I'm going to take them from their country or their state or city. I'm going to bring them back to my hometown, change their first." and last name, change their birth certificate, change their cultural identity. Uh, I'm going to force them to assimilate to whatever religion that I'm currently practicing. Uh, I'm going to force them to um, get rid of all of their biological connection. Um, And then if they're not happy, you know, they're just stuck here. What am I describing? Oh, it's both. Oh, no. (laughs) And then whatever they say, they usually say slavery. I'm like, no, I was actually describing adoption. But the gag is, it's literally both. And mm-hmm. when I when I say slavery, people think I'm talking about American cattle slavery uh, mm-hmm. or chattel slavery, and I'm not. It's it's the the process of slavery of removing someone unwillfully without mm-hmm. consent, changing everything about them, identity, name. People don't even realize our birth certificates are changed. There is like and, and it causes so many problems, especially for international adoptees, because you can be adopted and your parents may not have. I have interviewed so many international adoptees who were either, um, they were almost export or not exporter. Oh my God, that sounds horrible. <laughs> they were almost, <laughs> I couldn't think, I can't think of the word. What is the word when you get, when you get kicked out of the country? Um, is it export? No, all I, I can think, think oh, it's not, it's deported. There we go. Oh my God. I was about to go, all I can think is export, export. Come on. Okay. If we're going to edit it out, we have to redo it. Cause we can't just laugh when we say deported. We'll sound terrible. You might be able to keep that in. Uh, cause we'll this, and also listeners, this is my personality. Um, trauma really, I, I, I laugh through my trauma and this is the only way that you can have these serious conversations is to kind of put a little humor into it because you know it it it's it, it, trauma if you you ain't gonna make it through if you don't ma- uh if you don't mm-hmm. laugh but deport it a lot of people are deported um a lot of adoptees are deported and mm. they've been adopted at birth they've been here their entire lives and that's why we have things like daca that were in place to try to protect them um uh, but as we saw and when tw- uh, 42 what 41 uh i don't know what number he was but we all know who i'm talking about when he was that over there man. doing the board <laughs> that one man <laughs> when he was doing the border control thing like these kids some of these kids literally got wrapped up in it and they were actual American adoptees. Other things that can happen with your birth certificate is just like the genealogy is just so messed up. So on my birth certificate, it says that a white woman and a white man gave birth to me in inner city of Detroit. Like they literally erase your birth parents from me. And a lot of people don't know this. Like my birth certificate is gone. Uh, my state sealed it for 99 years. I can get access uh, to it when I'm 108. Uh, if I make it to <laughs> <laughs> make it to 108. I believe in you. If anyone would live that long, you would. You'd do it. <laughs> right? Just out of spite. Just out of spite, just so I can get my original birth certificate. The issue that that draws is whenever I'm doing my family genealogy, that creates an issue. My family tree is literally ridiculous because I have my adoptive family tree and my, and my biological family tree. But legally... If you if you like look up my legal family tree, it's going to go up my adoptive family's family tree. And some people say, well, what's the problem with that? And you know, if you're an adoptee who don't who chose this, who consented and had informed consent to change your entire identity, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I wasn't that adoptee. I was a young kid who didn't know that all of that was going to happen and that all of this was permanent. And I also didn't know that adoption was something that I I could not get out of. Uh, there's no adoption mm-hmm. annulment. There's no adoption reversal. Um, those people are my legal parents until we, until I, my, me and other adoptees can fight for adoption annulment. Or, you know, I can go readopt myself like a used car to someone else just so I can legally get away from them. But that doesn't 
take me back to my original birth certificate yeah. that just puts some new strangers on my birth certificate. So mm-hmm. it's just, there's so many issues with adoption that people really don't understand or see. Um, and that's why I take the time to explain them. Something you've mentioned a couple of times is this idea of child-centered. And I think that was really eye-opening for me when I first heard you talking about that because it makes so much sense. It's so obvious that the child in foster care, the child in adoption should be the, the person that we're thinking about. Well, I don't think it's just a foster care and adoption thing. I think it's an American societal thing. Children are possessions, even mm-hmm. for biological families. Like they, they think that they own their children. They can tell them mm-hmm. what to do with their hair, their body. They A lot of folks don't believe in body autonomy for children when it comes to controlling anything about themselves, you know? So I think that that's a, our, that's a societal problem for us as Americans where we just don't think that, I know children are just tiny little human beings. Uh, that have their own autonomy. Um, they're not They're not dumb. They understand a lot more than what we give them. But I think, especially when we get into this adoption, people have a ownership issue, which it's they, they adopt. Whenever I talk to someone who was adopted, especially um, internationally or a, at birth adoption, it's always, I always ask them, why did you adopt? And the two responses I always get is I'm, either I'm infertile or I wanted to help a child in need. Both of those responses start with the subject is the parent. I was infertile and I wanted to help a child. It never was, oh, there was a child in need and I responded. It never mm-hmm. was, oh, I, um, there was a, and, and once you start to actually work your brain of why, why do you adopt? And people say, well, I want to save a child. Okay, well, there's other ways that you can help. Have you offered any type of support to the child? And, and that's why I say start with family preservation. Do you know the family? Why is this child up for adoption? get to the nitty gritty of it. Uh, but most people automatically just think like, oh, adoption is beautiful and there's no reason. And then on the flip side, biological parents are all like these evil people who are crackheads, who are like dumpster, who left us in a dumpster, which, you know, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but it's like, it's so funny because just like adoption has this rose centered class, biological parents have like this mm-hmm. cloud and they're just like, just mm-hmm. evil people. And I'm like, how can you, how, how, you know? So I think it, it's easier for people to justify the purchasing of human beings by saying that they're helping when ultimately you are changing something permanently about a human being that could not, that they could not consent to. I always ask people, what's a proper age for a child to consent to marriage? Honestly, my gut check is like 25, but I guess technically 15 <laughs> or not 15. 15? Like, like, I'm sorry. 15. 18. 15 feels too young. I want everybody should be 30 before you get married. In certain states like Tennessee, they're trying to make the ages young as 11. Um, but Ooh. the correct answer is, in my opinion, 18 to 25. We mm-hmm. all know that the human frontal lobe doesn't fully develop until you're 25. But whenever I ask that question, like, what's a good age for people to, to allow a child to consent to marriage? Everyone's like, oh, usually like later teens, 25. And I say, so why is it okay for a baby or a child to be put in the same legal contract that resembles a lot of Mm. marriage that actually doesn't come with the same rights as marriage? If marriage was set up like adoption, you would choose one person and no matter what happened, you're stuck with that person. And the only way for you to get out of that relationship is to go get remarried to someone else. That wouldn't roll with people, would it? So (laughs) why is it happening in adoptions? I compare adoptions to marriage a lot because one, they're both legal. They're both legal contracts. That's just what it is. Mm -hmm. And the difference is marriage is two consenting adults who made the decision to love each other and, and, and support each other and offer a better life, right? That's what marriage is. But 70%, mm-hmm. almost we're pushing 70% of divorce rates here in the States. So if we understand that if two consenting adults can don't make it 70% of the time, how do we expect 100% of adoptions to make it when one of the parties didn't consent at all? So we need to start making a way out for people. Inherently, the idea of family preservation also really makes sense. Can you explain a little bit about what that is and how the system as it exists today is not set up to support family preservation. Everyone always asks me, what are the alternatives to adoption? Because you seem, everyone says like, you seem to be really harsh or anti-adoption. So I always offer, there are five steps myself and other adoptees go through that are alternatives to adoption. The first one is family preservation, which Mm -hmm. like we're about to go into. Family preservation is whatever issue it is, and especially at, at birth adoptions, 
the most reasons why people put up their children is just poverty. It's just that they're poor. So if it's a financial mm-hmm. issue, the resource that we offer are finances. I forget this, the statistic, but I was so somewhere around, I think, 70% of people who are is either 70 or 90% of people of mothers uh, who gave up their child at birth said if they had an extra $5,000, they would have actually been okay to keep their child. And we see this, if you look at the numbers of adoptions that really dwindled in 2020, the number of adoptions like dropped and everyone's like, oh, it's because, well, we don't know why we don't people. And I'm like, no, what happened in 2020? People were starting to actually get livable wages because of the because of COVID. We got all of that COVID money and then they were doing like mm-hmm. extra unemployment and they were really pushing out social like eco- like economics. They were making sure that our society was able to work from home, stay at home uh, with their children and they were giving us extra income. So it's like we saw a dip in foster care placements and a dip in adoptions in 2020 because the government was actually providing resources to families so that's that's one thing of family preservation the next step is a family let's say if you have to to do a removal because people say so let's say family preservation is not possible let's say the the mother and father are dangerous what's the next step the next step after that uh would be kinship care so grandma aunts uncles or even an older sibling keep them within that family that's still connected to family preservation we want to keep the kids with their families and then still offer resources to mm-hmm. that kinship family, rather it be financial resources, therapy resources, childcare resources. Uh, the next step after that is fictive kinship, which is someone in, within their community. It could be a church member. It could be a neighbor or a friend, just someone that they know on a daily day basis so they can stay within their community. After that, you have permanent guardianship, which I advocate for. So the first three steps by the time the, the system just ignores all of those a lot of the times. Some states are doing good at uh, kinship placements. Some states just completely ignore it. They go from removal to right to foster care. There is no offer for kinship placements. There's no offer for guardianship placements. They're going from removal right to foster care. Guardianship is with either a foster parent or just someone who can take guardianship of the child. I believe in permanent guardianship. If you're going to take guardianship of a child, it should be permanent so they can get to the age of 18. And then the last step is, the number fifth step is adoption uh, with informed consent. But I don't believe that a child can consent at all. So pretty much you have to wait until the child's 16 to 18 to even discuss adoption, which that throws off a lot of people because they just want to adopt a baby. You can adopt them when they're older. You can do permanent guardianship from birth until they're 18. And if they want to, if they want to change their identity, their name, everything about themselves, their birth certificate, it should be their right. And then at that age, they can make that informed consent decision. So what are the legal differences that make, is it permanent guardianship? Was that the right? Okay. So a lot of people always ask like, so what are, yeah, what are the legal differences? What are your rights? Because that's one of the questions I always get on TikTok is, well, if I do permanent guardianship, I can't add them to my insurance. Incorrect. So when you have permanent guardianship, they become a dependent. You can file, you can, um, file them in your taxes. You can put them on your health insurance if you choose to. You can take them out of state. And you also have to look at if this is permanent guardianship through a private placement or through foster care. If they're a permanent placement through foster care, there are some rules and regulations like if you have to get permission from the biological parents to go out of state. But a majority of the times, those rules and regulations are very well written out in your court order for your permanent guardianship placement. I mean, you know what to do with, to remain those orders. The actual legal differences is they are they're almost identical. You are, by all purposes and means, the person's legal guardian. The only difference is the child retains their birth certificate, they retain their last name, they retain their birth rights and to their next of kin with their biological family. But everything else, it, it, it pretty much is the same. You, you get to raise the child. And yeah, so that's why I, I really tell people the only, the only reason for adoption truly People say, well, I adopted to make them feel, to make them feel like they're Mm -hmm. part of the family, to concrete it. I'm sorry, a piece of paper does not concrete a relationship. And in fact, I was adopted and I was left on the street. So what did that concrete for me? (laughs) You know, the negatives is, and I'm going to talk about this from a lived experience of being a former foster youth. If you adopt a child out of foster care and, you know, that's great. A lot of people say like, there are, like I said, in the beginning of the show, there's 115,000 kids in foster care up for adoption. I believe that you should do permanent guardianship until they can consent, but there are benefits that come with aging out that children get. Like you get um, 
healthcare, you get school scholarship funds, uh, and I think most states do, local states, colleges are free. You get living assist assistance, housing assistance. And when you adopt, a lot of those a lot of those benefits and stipends stop. So you really have to consider, like, if you're going to adopt this child, are you going to be able to pay for their healthcare, their mental health? And especially if they're coming from foster care, they might need some inpatient mm -hmm. care. Are you willing to put $25,000 into their healthcare? Or is it more beneficial for them to remain in ward of the state while they get that health care, while they get their college, while they get all of these benefits that the state provides? And then after they're 21, 22, and they've gotten all the benefits, they can turn their head and turn around and do an adult adoption, which I, I, I love when people do that because it's just like that's true consent when person's like, hey, you've been here mm -hmm. since I was like five years old and I'm not going anywhere, you know, and I, and I, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the adoption that I support is a truly consentful adoption uh, that is well informed. One of the things that I'm, I'm hearing from you, because this is such an emotional thing for so many people, is that the difference between adoption and guard and permanent guardian is primarily a legal one that we treat adoption like it's this emotional term when it is absolutely a legal term. It's literally a legal term. When I, I tell people it's a legal term, it's literally a legal term and it's a, a legal process that happens. Just like marriage. Mm -hmm. When people say marriage, it doesn't mean it's a happy marriage. It just means that they're legally married. Like it's just a mm -hmm. legal marriage. That's why I want people to start to get out of that. Oh, adoption is beautiful and it's so great. Adoption offers a different life, not always a better life. Mm -hmm. And the things is you lose a lot and you don't gain much. Uh, that you already shouldn't should be getting with even I don't need a if you truly love a child and you're a child center it does not take a piece of paper that will take everything from them to truly like like if you truly mm -hmm. love a child you would not take everything from them you would not take their name you would not take their culture you would not take their identity one of the most hurtful things that has ever happened to me in my life um, my mom and my sister died two years ago uh, three and a half years ago four years ago almost now uh, in a car accident and I was with my brothers at this really emotional time. And um, I I fortunately was the one who was like uh, the, paying for it because my brothers are, have always had financial problems and I didn't have an issue paying. Um, it's like, it's my mom and my sister. Uh, but we did, you know, there was, I, I have a, I have a limit and my brothers just don't, they just think that I'm ATM and <laughs> it just keeps going mm. and going and going. So at one point, my brothers wanted a funeral and a, uh, and a burial. And I said, hey, we have to do either or. That's just how the budget is. And um, my brother tells them, the funeral director, he goes, well, you know, Carlos really can't make the decision because he's not legally next of kin. So it doesn't matter what he wants. And the, the guy looks at me. He goes, well, what do you mean? You guys are brothers. And he goes, well, Carlos was adopted as a child. So he's legally not next of kin. And the funeral director looked at me, he was like, is that true? And I was like, yeah, I was adopted when I was nine. And he goes, well, excuse me, Mr. Dillard, can you please exit the room while I discuss this with your brothers? And I was like, yes, uh, but uh, I will be taking that credit card though with me. Thank you very much. And y'all can discuss away. Yeah. Um, but it, to this day, I mean, it affected me and my brother's relationship for years. We just got back on track. But like to have a complete stranger tell me that I am not my mother's or my sister's mm -hmm. next of kin, and I couldn't make any decisions. That wasn't something that I was told, and I and mm -hmm. I and that was kind of like the initiation of me doing this work. I was pissed, like I was pissed, like no one told me that that would happen. It, it is so upsetting to be told that that is the person that gave birth to you is not your mother. Like it is so upsetting. That idea of trauma informed, and that um, I've a term I've heard a lot is the idea that like adoption is trauma. That this experience is trauma and that kids are often have often gone through some level of trauma prior to being adopted. What does that mean for somebody who doesn't know? And why is that an important thing for parents who are, for people who are considering centering a child as part of their, their lives and doing, and they are going to be that permanent guardian or whatever it is for a child? Yeah, that's a great question. When I say adoption is trauma, people say, well, I, even though some adoptees will say, well, I had a great adoption and my parents are great. And, you know, they saved me mm -hmm. and they, they offered me a great life. And I was like, well, that's brilliant. Like that's, that's what we want. <laughs> if, if that's mm -hmm. what we are, if that's what we are going to do. But the fact of the matter is a family was separated for that to happen. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Maternal separation had to happen for adoption. Any Every adoption starts with maternal separation. Every single one. And it's not just a, a, a feeling or an opinion. We scientifically know that maternal separation is a traumatic event for not only the mother, but also the child. They spent their entire time in utero getting used to their mother's sense, the way that she walks, the way that her voice sounds. Babies can literally identify their mother by face, by seeing them the first time. So when that happens, when an adoption happens, especially at birth, and they are separated at birth, maternal separation happens. And even in foster care instances, like I was six years old when I went into foster care, that maternal separation, even though my mom wasn't the greatest mother, I still had access. I still saw her on a regular basis. And then to that separation, that's an initial trauma. So that's why I say adoption is trauma because for adoption to even become an option, it started with maternal separation, which is traumatic. Now, that doesn't mean that after that, every adoptee is going to continue to be traumatized. But I mean, if you look at the statistics, we do, because then we start because of that maternal separation. And if the parents aren't child centered and they aren't doing a radical adoption and they aren't communicating with the biological family and having just an open relationship with the biological family where the kid knows both sides, their adoptive family and their biological family, that creates identity issues, especially if it's a transracial adoptee. And then you have religious trauma, because a lot of adoptive parents are religious. That's religious trauma. And then it just starts layering, like if you mm-hmm. are part of the LGBT. So then you have identity trauma, and then you're questioning your your sexual identity, and then you're mm-hmm. questioning your racial identity because you're Black and you're raised in a white neighborhood. So it's like, it starts to layer, but that's not every adoption. Some adoption you have that initial adoption trauma of maternal separation and your parents do great. I've heard adoptees who are like, my parents, you know, my biological mom is invited to Thanksgiving and to birthdays and we hang out all the time. And, you know, we're just a big, happy Brady Bunch family. And, you know, I knew about my culture. So that doesn't mean that the adoption was traumatic. It means that the adoption started with trauma. So that's why I say adoption is trauma. Because it has to start with trauma, yeah. but it doesn't mean that that has to be the destination. That's why you have to be child, child-centered and trauma-informed. That was one of the first phrases that I think caught me. And it's that thing you mentioned about jar. you say something jarring to catch people's attention. Like that was one that caught me. Because I know a lot of people who have either been adopted or who have adopted kids. And I'm like, so they're all like just traumatized. And I think as a society, we have this very specific view of what trauma is. Mm-hmm. The more that you learn about it, the more that you're like, first of all, I would be floored to meet someone who has experienced no trauma in your life. The specific trauma that adoptees experience at maternal separation is called the primal wound. Uh, there's a book about it mm-hmm. that a uh, psychiatrist made. And she's also an adoptive parent. And uh, it's one of my favorite reads. And it really does explain to you and the thing is, a lot of people love to compare us to dogs. Like, I don't know why we always get compared to animal adoptions. There's actually a historical, not to go on a little tangent, but there's a historical connection between like why there are so many similar words with adoption, like mm-hmm. rehoming, um, the word adoption. Like, why can't we come up with a different word for humans than we did with for animals? But surprisingly, would you be surprised that the ASBCA was the first organization that actually um, uh, kind of officiated human adoptions they were the first ones that like did cps reports and investigated child abuse and because no other people were you you were just allowed to abuse your kids like you there were no child abuse laws and then there were these kids getting abused and abandoned and they're like well we're helping these dogs um oh no (laughs) so let's y'all can google this it's real let's just go ahead and help these kids too so there's actually a lot of connection between (laughs) adoption and human adoption and pet adoption because the same organization started it that's crazy funny thing is people understand even when you adopt a dog like when you get a dog you can't take it away from its mother before four weeks Everyone knows that. Like, everyone knows that. Everyone's like, you can't take the dog away before four to six weeks. It's bad. It can die. Why? Because it doesn't learn how to be a dog. It doesn't learn how to train. And we know without that, you will literally, animals literally die. And I think human get human beings get so pompous because we're so smart and so brilliant and our technology has gone so mm-hmm. far. We forget we're just mammals. We're just mm-hmm. animals. So just like a dog, and I hate to compare because people hate when they have to compare mm-hmm. adopters to a dog. But since y'all love to do it, I'm going to do it. <laughs> Just like a dog, you just can't rip a child from their from from their mother, especially at birth. Mm-hmm. And that trauma is yeah. going to last with that that child forever. So you've specifically brought up the idea of how a transracial adoptee's experience is different. And within a lot of the things you talked about with the the terms we use in the comparison to slavery and other things, 
the built-in racism within adoption and the foster care system, I think is something that is super apparent if you look. Like I said, I, I studied African-American history studies. Um, once you actually start to look at our systems, you really have to do a deep dive into African-American histories. The laws that were set up, the things, the unfairness uh, that happened, and just the history of uh, chattel slavery here in America. The history of slave owners buying children, Black children, and making them like dolls for their white children, buying black children because they couldn't have their own children and trying to like dress them up as white children. And then even the history of transracial adoption kind of dips into, um, I, how do I say this? When the slave masters would have intercourse with their slaves and then you end up with biracial children, some would get adopted if they were white enough um, and it'd have to be passable, but still deal with identity issues of being black. I think in America, we are so okay with adoption because we were so okay with slavery. And if people don't mm. see that, I don't know how to make it more simple for you. This country is one of the only countries that just like turn a blind eye at exchanging exchanging money for human beings. And I think we mm. that's something that we got used to for so long. It has affected us. As a transracial adoptee, and I and I teach transracial adoption courses, I have one coming up in November uh, at Michigan State University called The Do's and Don'ts of Adopt or Transracial Adoption, because I know not every white person is racist. Consciously, I know that. Mm -hmm. But subconsciously, I also know that you were raised in a racist society. <laughs> so you could be the best person on the planet, like a really good ally, like a really good person. And there are things that you don't even know that are racist. Mm -hmm. On my platform, a lot of my my um, a lot of my clients follow me on TikTok, and they are white parents who have adopted black children. And you know, they're like, "I would have done partner guardianship if we would have found you years ago, but we didn't know. But now we're here. What can we do?" And I really mm -hmm. tell them like, "You need to really start looking into African American histories and unpacking your internalized racism because that's going to affect your child. If you don't know about macro and microaggressions, if you the worst thing you can do as an adoptive parent, especially to a black child, is say I don't see color because if you don't see color, you're not seeing your child. They're they are mm -hmm. a person of color. They have have color if you're not seeing them that means you're not listening to them and it's not invisible as a transracial adoptee i also think it's important for people if you're specifically going to try to adopt black children is check your check your family you might be not racist you might be quote unquote anti-racist but is the environment that this child is going to be in is it safe is their school safe? Is the church safe? Is your own family safe? You know, there are, I grew up in a conservative household with Catholic parents and you brought a homosexual black man into this. And I had racist uncles and stuff like, and they would just mm -hmm. say degrading things about black people right in front of me, like N words and anything that you can think. And then look at me like, oh, but you're not one of them. You're one of us. You're one of the good ones. Ugh. It tokenizes you. It makes you question your identity. And that takes you back to that maternal separation trauma. And it's something to really be conscious about. You have to be anti-racist to even think about being a transracial adoptive parent. And even then, there are things that you are never going to be able to do. And everyone's mm -hmm. like, oh, I learned about their hair. Okay, hair is like a, the, a bare minimum. Okay, you took some hair classes. Like you watched some YouTube. Congratulations. Like, cool. But you know, I'm not going to hate on them because my parents didn't even do that. So I'm not mm -hmm. hating on you. I'm not yeah. hating on you. But I'm saying <laughs> learning about our skin and our hair is the bare minimum are you learning about the culture are you learning are is your child getting five to ten cultural mirrors are they seeing black people in their day-to-day -day who have businesses who are friends and families are like they they need to be in schools and in, in neighborhoods that have kids that look like them that speak like them are you making sure that you have these children with mentees because you will never be able to experience a micro or macro aggression you can you can research it but you're never going to be able to experience it. You're never going to be able to truly understand how to respond. It's something that I talk to my clients a lot, my adoptive parents. They adopted a kid back in the like 2000s and now the kid is 16, 17, 18, 19. They're like, Carlos, mm -hmm. my son got pulled over and I don't know what how to tell them what to do. And I'm like, you didn't think about this when you adopted a black son 20 years ago? And it's true. Like, that's not something she's like, I've never been pulled over in my life. I didn't, I don't. And I was like, you, yeah, yeah, your son's going to yeah. get pulled over. And especially if you guys are living in a predominantly white neighborhood and he has a nice car. Oh, you better get him ready. You better. Because guess what? 
they don't see adoptee. They see black man. Okay. <laughs> they just see black man. And how articulate you are is not going to save you. And the thing is, if you don't have the tools, how can you teach something you don't have the tools to? And that's where I come in. And mm-hmm. I just saw a, there was a lack of information. Like, where is this information for adoptive parents? Sometimes like you can Google and stuff. And sometimes you, you don't even know what to Google. Like, how do you even think about step one, two, three steps mm-hmm. on how to tell my black son how to respond to a police? Like, that's a lot to put in the Google bar. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, so there's just yeah. things like that that you truly have to think about. And I think people just adopt for personal selfish regions and they don't think they're not child centered. You don't test those limits until you have a baby there because that's the first time your family has been told that they're going to now have a black person in their family. It's so hard. It's so hard as a transracial adoptee things are it's so just imagine, like I said, your maternal separation problem, identity issues. Mm -hmm. And then, and then you're dealing with racism, not only outside of your home, and if you even if you have good parents, I, I was dealing with racism inside the home and outside the home. But let's just say even if you mm-hmm. have great parents who are anti-racist, right? And you're saying, mom and dad, this is happening to me mm-hmm. as I leave the safety of your home. Do they know how to respond? Do they know how, what advice to give you? Are they going to be brave enough to go to the other white folks that are doing this in their community and say, no, you're not going to do this to my child? Or are they going to do the classic, well, just try to be a better person. Just try to make more friends. Like, that's what I was told. Like, just just smile mm-hmm. more. Just try to be, like, maybe if you just stop talking like that and just try to, like, change the way you speak. Because when I was adopted, I was, like, eight or nine when my adoption was finalized. And I spoke mostly Ebonics. Like, I spoke, like, AAVE for a lot of my, a lot of my language yeah. because that's just how I was raised. And when I say, well, my parents beat it out of me. But a lot of parents just emotionally beat it out of people. Yeah. Uh, yeah literally insane the things that people do that adoptive parents do without being trauma-informed or child-centered especially without being anti-racist um like i said even if you are the most anti-racist person you're just truly at a humanistic level not going to ever understand you can uh, forget you can sympathize but you can never empathize i forget which one you can never actually experience it the idea of lived experience and i think You've, you've brought a lot of amazing statistics. I'm a numbers girl. I love numbers. I, I love hearing statistics. It's so helpful to frame things in my mind. But I think in general, we I think it's particularly an American problem, although it probably is other places as well. We're so focused on experts and we really use that to diminish people's lived experiences. Why is lived experience so important in the work that you do? You know, even myself, so, you know, I now work at a collegiate level um, teaching uh, foster care, mm-hmm. financial literacy, transracial adoption knowledge, and I'm and I'm doing these panels and talks and, and conferences with doctors and people with letters behind their names that, like, I don't even know. I was like, what's a QPTSD? And like, what did you get a degree in? They're like, well, I was in school for 16 years. And I, was, <laughs> I was like, okay, wow. The thing is, you know, what I've always noticed is even, like, they're knowledgeable. They've read all the books. I, I love how we transition to that. Just like being a white person, you can never be black. Just like being a therapist or a social worker, you can actually never be a foster youth. So you can read as many experiences and books mm-hmm. and, and go to as many college classes and courses to get all of these degrees. But that's all of those experiences that you're learning on are from people like me. You had someone initially said, hey, this is what happened uh, for you to even get the statistics and the numbers. So that's what I I discovered that everyone wasn't excited to listen to the doctor with the PhD when I went to these conferences and when I do these speeches and TED Talks and stuff. They want to listen to me. And the reason they want to listen to me is mm. I'm not just sitting up there spewing off statistics. I, I can throw some statistics in there, but I'm actually going to tell you how it actually feels to be there. And nothing will ever trump lived experience. Um, now, I do think that there is a little bit when it comes to combining your lived experience with statistical knowledge, which is what I do. Um, I take my lived mm-hmm. experience and then I look at the statistics and other examples of adoption and foster care and the knowledge that we have that's provided. That's where I, how I make my classes. So I'm give, telling my lived experience, but then I'm backing my lived experience. For example, in my financial literacy course, I talk about like how you can help your foster youth, your adoptee uh, have a safety net and stay out of the cycle of poverty. Meanwhile, still showing you how I hit every cycle 
every point of the cycle of poverty. So I was using my lived experience, but also sharing the statistics. So a lot of people, like you said, are obsessed with, I hate to keep bringing it up, but I think that that's also part of racism. Like it, it is part of classism. Like, oh, mm-hmm. you, you can't know anything because you don't have a PhD. Yes, I do know a lot and I'm very well versed in everything in adoption and foster care. And not only am I well versed at the laws and the statistics, but I have the lived experience and you can't tell me. And I, I use this example. Would you rather have a person, have a, have a brain surgeon who's been doing brain surgeries for 20 years? Maybe he didn't go to college, but he's been doing them for 20 years successfully. He just started opening up people's brains, but you're not the first one. You're, you're in year 20. Would you rather him do it or would you have a person read a book for 20 years and then you be the first one that that he tries? Who are you going to who are you going to go to? I'm going to go with the guy, even though he doesn't have a doctorate degree. He's been doing this for 20 years successfully. And the thing is, the guy who's been reading about it has been reading the <laughs> the first guy's books or listening to his talk. Yeah. That's where he's getting his knowledge. So it's like lived experience will never be out trumped because you can never better experience than actually being there. It's so funny to me how in situations like this, where it is this like in racism, it's these social situations, it's this social justice thing, or in adoption and foster care, there's so much emotion in it and all of these other things. But in work situations, my degree is not in marketing, but everybody accepts that I'm an expert in marketing because I've been doing it for 10 years. And it's the exact same thing, but somehow we can't connect those dots. So the same person who looks at my resume and does not care about my college major would really care about the fact that someone doesn't have a doctorate and doesn't trust Mm. their lived experience, which I think is wild. It is wild. It is very, very wild. I agree. So for people who are, maybe they they are genuinely with the right intentions, saying the thing of, I want to help a child. And that's the reason that they want to adopt or be a foster parent or whatever that is. What is your advice for them to start really understanding what the realities of the system is and how they can truly help kids and really center children? A lot of things I hear from people is like, I've always dreamed of adoption. Ever since I was a little kid, I've dreamed of adoption. And I tell them what I hear when I hear that is, I've always dreamed that a family will fail so I can have a child. It's the same thing. Mm. Uh, so you've been dreaming mm-hmm. that a fa- your whole life that a family will fail, or if you're religious, I've been praying for adoption. You've been praying to God that a family will fail. The first thing you have to do bef- if you're fostering or adopting is you have to do some internal searching. I always suggest doing trauma therapy yourself because you can't help anyone if you haven't helped yourself first. And I definitely don't want, and that's another issue is a lot of people don't help themselves first and then end up actually complexing the trauma for the child because they can't take care of it. And that's why adoptive parents like mine end up abandoning or rehoming on Facebook. Or if you're a foster parent, you just send them to the next home. So you really need to prepare yourself and unpack your own traumas that are connected. Because every, like you said, we're all human beings. We got some trauma somewhere. Um, so unpack your own mm-hmm. trauma. And then on top of that, start listening to people with lived experiences. We are putting out content. We are putting out uh, resources and tools for you all. Um, start listening to them. A lot of people just, like you said, they don't want to listen to you if you don't have a doctorate or they just turn to the church. The church ain't going to help none. I'm just telling you like, and I'm not anti-religious. I, I, I'm i just saying like, mm-hmm. you, you need to turn to the people who've actually lived it and experienced it. Mm-hmm. So go on TikTok, look up adoptees, look up former foster youth. But the number one thing is to truly, truly, truly be child-centered. So if you are looking at adoption, you if you're child-centered, you should never be looking at privatized adoption. That's never child-centered. You're purchasing a child. So that, that leaves mm-hmm. foster care. Not everybody's built to be a foster parent. So then that leaves, you can be a respite care placement. You can be a CASA worker. What other ways can you help a child? Because if you truly want to help save a child, there are more ways than permanently changing their identity. And at the end of the day, people who say they want to hope to help or adopt what have you done in your community right now what ha- have you prepared yourself have you mm. worked with adoptees in your community have you worked with foster youth in your community have you volunteered as an office mom or dad uh, do you volunteer for uh, toiletry and backpack drives have you reached out to your local foster care or adoption agency to see if you can be a mentor or a mentee to some children and get their lived experience because that will really open your eyes and i've had a lot of clients that i've worked with like two years 
they were hopeful adoptive parents. Like they're like, they were the type of people like I've been dreaming since I was seven years old, praying every day on my, mm-hmm. on my knees. And now when I talk to them, they're like, oh no, like, oh, we could, we could never adopt because by, by once you go down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. it's unethical. And if you truly are child centered, mm-hmm. it's unethical. You're changing everything about the child. So does that mean they didn't help? No. Some of them are CASA workers. Some of them are foster parents. Some of them are, some of them did adopt through the process because I'm not going to say they all didn't. Some of them did adopt through the process because of reasons where, you know, the state was saying, we're going to, we're going to take the child and place them into another foster home. And that's what the state does a lot. When you push back and uh, ask mm-hmm. for guardianship, the state will push back or there was abuse in the, in the, in the child needed a safe place. But then even when they did, they did a, a radical open adoption where it's literally co-parenting with the biological family. And they would have never done mm-hmm. that without the knowledge that I offered them. So that, you know, there are so many things to prepare yourself for. And there are so many other options that you can do to help children that don't, uh, that don't include changing their entire identity that you definitely should um, look into first. For like either kids or adults who were in the foster system or were adopted or any of those things. And maybe they've always known that this was a really garbage situation for them, or they've always seen it and experienced it. In, with that sort of gratitude that we expect of children who've been adopted, or even genuinely, it was a great experience for them and their parents did a lot. What are some resources to have better understanding of all of this stuff that helped you or just people who want to learn more about that? And it was their experience. I always start with The Primal Wound. It's a book that you can get on Amazon. Uh, I forget the author's name right off the top, but if you look up The Primal Wound. We'll put a link in the description too. That's the first book that I learned uh, about that talks about maternal separation. Also a book that's called Before We Were Sisters is actually sitting right behind me by Lisa Wintergate or something like that. I'm halfway through that book uh, that talks a lot about uh, sibling separations. If you are an adoptee, especially if you're an adoptee, there are a lot of resources when it comes to book material. But honestly, TikTok, I, I hate to say it, but TikTok is one of the biggest resources that I suggest because it offers community for adoptees that they haven't had. Like I have so many adoptees that say like, I had a good adoption, but I've always felt empty or I've always felt not connected. Mm. And I didn't know um, about the adoption fog. And I didn't know that like, I could still be thankful for my adoption, but I didn't have to be grateful. Um, and she, and then, mm. and people just don't understand that there's adoptees that, that had bad experiences. People don't even know that that exists. So I think the number one resource for, if you just, if you're just looking for just other adoptees, if you're an adoptee is social media. And, and there's a lot of different groups that you can get into, but if you want to start unpacking your adoption fog and your adoption trauma personally, really just look into some uh, some reading material um, and try to stick to the ones that are from people with lived experience. I know the primal wound is from an adoptive mother, uh, but she worked with her adoptive daughter to write that book and a bunch mm-hmm. of other adoptive parents and adoptees. It's a lot. It's a book full of lived experience from adoptees. And any parents who have adopted children, whether it's transracial adoption or through any of these other means that we're talking about, like they're through that process. They either already have their kids currently living with them or they are adults. Their kids are adults now or whatever it is. What do you recommend for them? Like what do you recommend they do the same kind of reading, the same sorts of research? Yeah, of course. Like the same type of reading, the same type of research, Uh, especially if they're still currently in their adoption and their child is not an adult yet. I believe that knowledge is power and knowledge creates positive experiences, you should constantly be growing. You should constantly be learning. So yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of things that people can do. But you know, honestly, the number one thing that I tell adoptive parents, and they hate when I tell them this, but I say, are you preparing your child to leave you? And they're like, well, why would my child leave me? And I'm like, well, there's a lot of, because this was a consentless agreement, your child might turn 18 and say, well, you know what, thanks, but adios. Are you prepared for that? Do you know that that's an option? Um, They're still legally going to be related to you um, until we can get adoption and enrollment done. Are you preparing your child to create their own financial success, their own uh, safety net, their own emotional safety nets? And that's true. Remember, we keep bringing this up. That's truly being child-centered. It's saying, Mm -hmm. hey, even if you choose to disown me when you're 18, I'm going to make sure that you have the tools 
and and the proper knowledge of banking and and how to file taxes and how to do a resume i'm going that's that's your job if you truly have already adopted a child your job is to raise them to the age where they can be adults just like any other parent mm-hmm. but remember they're not your kid that yeah. and and, and it, it stings it stings when i say it mm-hmm. but if you're truly being child centered you acknowledge that and you even with that knowledge you still do the same things you're doing now if not more which means that you need to educate yourself more one resource that I, I I know exists, but I haven't had a chance to look into too much, is you have a podcast as well. Yeah, so I have a podcast called Wards of the State. It is a play off my memoir of foster care I wrote called Ward of the State. Um, and my book is about my experience in foster care. And it kind of details from each foster home and to the point that I got adopted. Uh, so when I wrote the book, I wanted everyone was like, thank you so much for sharing your experience. I didn't know that this happened. And I, that's kind of like how we say, like, how did I get into this? I want other people's stories. Like, I want to know mm-hmm. what other people, because every time I looked up adoption podcasts, it was always like the adoptive parent speaking mm-hmm. or like a professional speaking or like a foster parent speaker or like a therapist or a social worker. And I was like, where are the adoptees and former foster youth? Like, I want to mm-hmm. hear it from, and there was literally none. There was none that was, sometimes they would have like people like me who are a foster youth, yeah. but also do it professionally come on. Uh, but not just like just regular, regular people who <laughs> just went through the system. So I created Warts of the State and it is it has been such a pleasure and such a privilege to be able to share so many different experiences because foster care nor adoption is a monolith. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. like I said, knowledge is power. So the more examples of lived experience that we can hear, the better that we can actually take preemptive maneuvers and ensure that they don't happen again. So uh, the podcast is really about people who are in foster care or adoption, um, even international. I have a lot of international adoptees come and share their stories as well. And it's all lived experience based. For the first year, I didn't interview anyone. If you weren't an adoptee or former foster youth, Sorry, because a lot of people are like, I'm a social worker and I'm a therapist. And they they try to do that. Like, I have all yeah. these degrees and I think, and I was like, Mm-mm, this is, this is yeah. a podcast about lived experience. Yeah. Um, last May, I did do a parents month where I interviewed first and birth parents, which are, who are also highly overlooked. Like their mm. stories are, how, how did the kid end up here? So I did a month of those stories, uh, but mainly it's just the lived experience of foster and adoptive youth. And there are some that are, that are beautiful. They they were, I just interviewed Shiv. She had an amazing adoption. Her adoptive parents were trauma, trauma-informed and child-centered, but they were also Mormon and she experienced a lot of religion trauma. Mm-hmm. So it really kind of gives you, even like kind of gives you an insight of, even if you're doing other things well, there might be some things you're overlooking. Yeah. Um, and then what better way to listen to it than a person who lived it? Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. Well, that's obviously if you're just going to go immediately listen to your podcast. I know I am. What are all the other ways they can stalk you on the internet? Uh, social media usernames are usually like the real Carlos Dillard. Or if you look up the ward of the state or wards of the state, you're going to get to me, Carlos Dillard. Um, if you go to my website, carlosdillard.com, it'll take you to everything that I do. I Like I said, I do have some courses coming up that I always suggest foster and adoptive parents just take a peek at. TikTok is the best place. And I love TikTok too, because I do like, Usually every other day I do lives where I invite other people with lived experience on and we just kind of chit chat and we do those prompts that get your mind engaged and just like the the lived experience of other people. You know, I had this one girl, she came on the other day and she's like, my parents are great people, but I'm afraid to find out who I am. And I said, well, what do you mean? She goes, my parents have never treated mm-hmm. me wrong. They're, they've never They've never treated me like an outsider. I've had a perfect adoption, if you want to think it's a perfect adoption. Mm. But she goes, my parents are big Trump supporters and they're anti-Latino people. And she goes, that I, she was adopted from Peru. So they know that she is Peruvian, but she fa- she's, she says she's fair and she favors. Like she's actually assimilated into mm. whiteness. So she she's pretty much looks white. And she's like, I'm afraid to take a DNA test because my parents know that I'm Peruvian, but I'm afraid to show that I may not be full Peruvian. I might be uh, like Mexican and they don't like Mexican. So I was like, are you afraid to find out who you truly are because you're afraid of denial from your parents? And that really, truly broke my heart. But then that was something that I didn't think about. Mm. It's like your political ideals, which everyone's entitled to their political ideals. Mm. But if you are a right-wing person who say these things, your child's going to hear it. And it literally makes them... 
afraid of you. So there's just things like even if you are doing everything else right, there's just things that you might be overlooking. Mm -hmm. So TikTok is a really good place to just get stories back to back to back without having to invest too much time to listen mm -hmm. to podcasts and stuff. Um, and it's also a good place to ask questions. I have adoptive and foster parents come up on my live and ask questions all the time. I can vouch for the fact that he's a great follow. I see his stuff all the time and get really excited about it. Thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast today. It genuinely is such a joy. I was, um, if you are listening to this and you are like, wow, this was an amazing episode. I'm gonna listen to all of Care So Much. I have some great news for you. We are all over the internet, Care So Much pod across every social platform you can dream of. And if you are out there and you're, there's something that you care a lot about and you think that other people don't, or you think that your passion is something that should be dimmed, just know that I care. I care so much.